So we're continuing our, our lessons in Christology, and we are considering once again uh, the priesthood of Christ. I um, hope everyone had a wonderful rest. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here by your grace. We ask that you will be with us through your Son and by your Spirit. Be with preacher and be with those who are hearing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so last time we were together, we looked at the, uh, the priesthood of uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, we learned many things. Um, essentially, though, what I hope that you got out of that was um, how Jesus Christ and his priesthood uh, far exceeds uh, the, the priests of the Old Testament. Uh, and um, there's much uh, application and, and there's much contemplation in light of such truth. So this evening, we're going to sort of piggyback on um, on that and look at uh, and go further on how Christ, uh, Jesus Christ and his priesthood um, is superior than the Old Testament priests as we consider Christ and Melchizedek, um, two figures um, whom one we know a lot about and the other we don't know much of any about okay so christ and melchizedek what i want us to consider this evening is again the superiority of jesus christ uh not in relation merely to the old priests in the old testament uh but to all of the figures uh that we see in the old testament um that jesus christ is far greater uh, than anyone uh, that has come before him and anyone that's going to come after him. And what we see in Melchizedek, uh, essentially, is we see the nature of Christ's priesthood. Best in Melchizedek, the nature of Christ's priesthood. So if we were to ask, what type, what type of priest is Jesus? Then we look to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is going to give us... Um, best what the nature of Christ's priesthood is. And if you were to say, okay, well, what if I looked at the Levitical priests? Um, then you would say, okay, that's what Christ's priesthood is not. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Who is Melchizedek? I don't, I'm sure many of you have heard of him. If you haven't heard of him, um, there is much smoke that enters the room when Melchizedek's name uh, is brought up because he is uh, a mysterious man to some people. Uh, some say that he's not a man, but he is the Holy Spirit. Uh, some say that he's the pre-incarnation of the Eternal Son. So he was, he, it's called a Christophany. He's the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, both opinions, I believe, are false. Um, I think it's right to believe that Melchizedek was an actual person uh, who has an origin, um, who uh, has who was installed um, in the priesthood. Uh, the only problem is it's just not recorded for us in Scripture of uh, those details of his origin and how he was installed and all these other things. But he's not the Holy Spirit, uh, and he's not the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, on the second point, which is a really popular point that he is a pre-incarnate Christ, 
one of the fatal flaws of that is just it blurries the line and it ruins uh, the type anti-type relationship that Melchizedek has with Jesus Christ. Uh, so if, if Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, if he is the eternal son before the eternal son assumed his body that the father prepared for him, then how in the world is Jesus Christ greater than Melchizedek if they're the same person? Um, that's kind of a little dilemma you might fall into. So Melchizedek, real person, actual person. Rather than try to figure out who Melchizedek is this evening, I think the Bible is more interested in teaching us who Melchizedek te- teaches us about. So rather than trying to figure out who Melchizedek is, origin, his parents, you know, what his favorite food was, all these other things, the Bible is more interested in teaching us about who Melchizedek points us to or who Melchizedek teaches us about. That is to say, the Bible mentions Melchizedek in order to teach us something about Jesus Christ. So why is Melchizedek in the Bible? To teach us something about Jesus Christ. And that's a lot of way, uh, we could think of it um, not in similar ways, but in some ways, how uh, all the Old Testament figures uh, are there. They are all there teaching us something about Jesus Christ. So, when we consider Melchizedek, we can we must consider him as a type of Jesus Christ. Now, if you haven't heard of type, anti-type language before, let me just give you three principles in understanding this. First, a type is a historical person, place, or institution, or event that was designed by God to point forward to a future historical person, place, institution, or event. Again, so let's just say a type is an historical person that points forward to another historical person. Second, the anti-type, the one whom the type is pointing forward to, is always greater than its type. Okay? We can say that there's an escalation from the type to the anti-type. For example, is Jesus Christ greater than Adam? Of course he is. Right? We see that there's an escalation from the type, Adam, to the anti-type, Jesus Christ. Christ is the greater. Third, types are both like and unlike their anti-types. So Adam is both like Christ, but also unlike Christ. Okay? There is what's called a correspondence and escalation. Melchizedek, now, is only mentioned, uh, and mind you, that's the argument for Melchizedek and who he is. He is a type of Jesus Christ. He points forward to, he foreshadows Jesus Christ. Melchizedek is only mentioned two times in the Old Testament. He's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, in a passage after Abram has been res- has rescued his neighbor Lot. Uh, we read in verses 18 through 20, uh, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, uh, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, a possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So here we see that Abram meets Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses Abram. Uh, So if you can, hold on to that point in your intellect, (laughs) that Melchizedek blesses Abram. Okay? We also see Melchizedek mentioned in Psalm 110, verse 4, where David begins that great psalm saying, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
So this tells us that this psalm is about David's Lord. And in Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord says to that priest king, I have made you a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So here we think we are to think that the father is telling the son, I have made you a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's kind of a way you can read Psalm 110. But the clearest passage of scripture of Melchizedek is seen in Hebrews chapter 7. We read in verse 1 through 3, um, and there's more we can expound on, but verse 1 through 3, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham uh, appointed a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning or beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So from this verse, we see many similarities between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. Many similarities. However, um, there are also dissimilarities as well, because Jesus Christ is greater than all of these descriptions of Melchizedek. So we can, in other words, take each of these descriptions of Melchizedek, we can liken him to Jesus Christ, and then turn up the volume, because he's greater. Okay? You'll see. Let's break these similarities down. The writer of the book of Hebrews calls Melchizedek king of Salem. First, um, we see a similarity of Christ and Melchizedek in their name. So what's the first similarity between Christ and Melchizedek? It's first in their name. Okay, Melchizedek, um, uh, in verse 2, the writer translates his name as king of righteousness and king of peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. Okay, And each of these names properly, notice the words here, properly belong to Jesus Christ. Uh, We read in Isaiah, a prophecy concerning Christ. uh, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. John Gill says his world proclamation is the gospel of peace. I mean, what is the, what is Christ's royal proclamation as a king, uh, as a priest? It is a gospel of peace, uh, of peace rather. And his subjects are the sons of peace. And he himself is the author of peace, not only between Jew and Gentile, but between God and his people. And he is the donor of peace externally, internally and um, eternally. He gives us peace, not only externally, internally, but for all times. Jesus Christ is. But saints, we're not to just limit uh, King of Peace to Jesus Christ and think that that's all he is. Um, if you read the Gospels, you, you hear regularly Jesus Christ talking about peace and him giving peace. So Jesus Christ being the King of Peace is a fitting name for Christ, and the, uh, no doubt. But we also see that King of Righteousness is just as fitting. So just as Melchizedek is king of righteousness, well, how much more fitting is it for Jesus Christ to be called king of righteousness? Our Lord is our righteousness. He is our peace and righteousness because he is that in his person. And saints, that is a wonderful news, is it not? 
that Jesus Christ is our peace and our righteousness. Because when we were united to Adam, and think about who you were when you were in Adam, apart from the things that you did, but who you are, how the Bible defined you, righteousness and peace were not at harmony with one another. You see, in Christ, righteousness and peace are at one with one another. Righteousness and peace are at harmony with one another. But when we were in Adam, righteousness was to the far left and peace was at the far right. I got that wrong, but you get what I mean. Um, they were on the opposite sides of the spectrum. In fact, it was our lack of righteousness that has caused us not to have peace with God. Why don't you have peace with God when you were in Adam? Because you do not have righteousness, along with other things, but a righteousness that's not of your own. So when we think about Adam and we sit in the garden, what did he forfeit for us? Well, not only do we lose the beatific vision, not only do we lose creator Sabbath rest, but also we lost that original righteousness. We lost a perfect standing before God. We lost peace with God. But thank God that he sent his son. And by faith, the spirit accredits us. The spirit gives to you, applies to you, a life that you did not live and a death you did not die. The spirit gives to you righteousness. Only in Christ, apart from works, do we have a perfect standing before God. It is only in Christ that we are seen as holy, harmless and undefiled. Only in Christ do we have a perfect standing before holy God and peace with God. It is only in Christ do we have these things. He is the king of these things. And he is the great donor of these things. Christ gives to us a great donation, a lofty donation. What is that? He gives us peace with God. He gives us a righteousness that we do not have in and of ourselves. The second similarity that we see and these two men is in origin, origin. Notice the writer of the book of Hebrews says, and Mal, uh, says, Mal, uh, um, Melchizedek, I want to say Malachi, Melchizedek in verse three, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. This is said of Melchizedek. Essentially what the writer is saying is Melchizedek has no origin. Uh, there is no genealogy. Uh, if Melchizedek signed up for Ancestry.com, uh, there would be no one to put on the tree because there's no one there. Now, how are we to interpret this? Are we to take this in a literal sense? And all you uh, Bible lovers who love to take the Bible as literally as possible, how do you interpret this? That Melchizedek has no genealogy or origin. Well, Wilhelmus Abrocco, a really good Dutch Reformed theologian, says this. This not ought to be understood in an absolute sense of the word, but only with reference to human knowledge. Or else one may possibly not have known his genealogy. At least we do not know this um, as it has been made known in Scripture who his father or mother were when he was born and when he died. Uh, so... Abraco's first argument of why we don't have any, why we can say that um, Melchizedek has no genealogy, no father or mother, simply because it's not recorded for us in Scripture. That's his first argument, though. 
Now he's going to give a second argument in relation to the office that Melchizedek holds, which is a priestly office. The Aaronic priests were priests by succession. That is, the son would take place of the father and was required to give evidence of his genealogy. Melchizedek, however, was a priest without succession. Prior to him, there was no one in his order whose place he had taken, nor was there anyone who succeeded him in this order. Not only is the suggestion that not only is, is the suggestion that he would have been created in an extraordinary manner, and as, and as Enoch was taken into heaven without seeing death and not recorded in scripture, uh, but it is contrary to it. As Acts 17.26 says, even then, it would have, even then, he would have also had a beginning of days. So, Abraco's second argument, I'm gonna read you one more, I have a lot of quotes <laughs> from various dead people, so bear with me, uh, because they're much smarter than me. And, uh, when I'm reading these quotes, I'm thinking, they say it better than I could ever. Abraco's argument is this, in terms to, uh, Melchizedek and his priestly office, there's no record of his family even being priests as well. John Gill, which is to be understood not of his person, but to his priesthood or of his priesthood, that his father was not a priest, nor did his mother descend from any in that office, nor had he either a predecessor or a successor in it, as appears from the authentic accounts, um, or this is to be interpreted not as his natural but scriptural being. For, no doubt, he was a mere man. He had a father and a mother and a natural lineage and descent. But of these, no mention is made in Scripture and therefore said to be without them. So, uh, Abrakel and what John Gill are saying is simply, it is not true to say in an absolute sense that Melchizedek has no origin. Okay, In a definitive absolute sense, we cannot say that Melchizedek has no origin. Now, the question is, can this be said of Jesus Christ? Scripture does not say that Melchizedek has an origin, but we know that he's a man and he has an origin. So he has an origin. But can this similarity be said of Jesus Christ too? And the answer is yes and no. It's, it's, it's a nuanced answer. It's yes and no. That yes, Christ has an origin, and no, he does not have an origin. In simple terms, uh, and this, bear with me as long as you can here with this argument. With respect to Christ as God, he has no mother. And with respect to Christ as man, he has no father. With respect to Christ as God, the eternal son, he has no mother, but he has an origin in the father. And with respect to Christ as man, he has no father. Again, Jesus Christ, the eternal son, one person, two natures. He is truly God and truly man. John Gill says this, Christ, who as man is without father. Joseph wasn't Christ's father. For though as God, he has a father. So what John Gill is saying here is, Jesus Christ, as the eternal son, has a father. It is the eternal father. It is God the father. 
and was without and was never without one. Jesus Christ, as son, was never without a father, being begotten by him and always with him and in him. Yet as man, he had no father and he has without mother, though not in a spiritual sense, every believer being in so to to him as such, nor in a natural sense as man for the Virgin Mary was his mother. You know, Jesus Christ had a mother. It was Mary. The Holy Spirit used the substance of Mary, the humanity of Mary, to form and frame the human nature of Jesus Christ. We can say that. In a divine sense, as God, he is without this center genealogy. Now, with respect to the office of priesthood that Christ was instituted in, what Scripture doesn't say concerning Melchizedek, we know for certain concerning Jesus Christ. Christ was not born of a father who was a priest, nor of a mother who sprung from priests. Nor do we read anyone in scripture preceding or being a successor of Christ's priestly office. So we see that what's true of Melchizedek only because of the silence of scripture is true of Christ because scripture is explicit. For example, it says in verse three, Melchizedek of Melchizedek having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now we know that that's not true. Uh, Melchizedek uh, uh, had a beginning of days and had an end of life. In this sense, he is a type of Christ who literally has no beginning of days and no end of days because he's the eternal son. Let's consider another similarity we see, and that's the everlasting priestly office of these two. Again, Psalm 110 verse 4 says, I have made you a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, of course, we can't say that Melchizedek right now is currently a priest. Melchizedek right now currently is not a priest. But Melchizedek's priestly vocation ended at the coming of the final and true priest, Jesus Christ. The argument was made this morning of how we are to test false prophets. Well, you know... The slam dunk argument for why there's no prophets is because Jesus Christ, the true prophet, has come. And then we can give the nine reasons or six reasons that Pastor Antonio gave to us. But if you want to give one reason, along with all the other reasons why there's no longer prophecy, because the final and true prophet has come. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Melchizedek's priestly vocation then ended at the coming of the final and true priest, Jesus Christ. In other words, Melchizedek and his priestly office, for, who foreshadowed Jesus Christ, ended when Jesus Christ, the greater Melchizedek, who occupies a greater priesthood, appeared. Simple as that. So, what we can say of Melchizedek and his everlasting priestly office in a non-literal way, we can say that Jesus Christ is our priests in a literal, everlasting way. And the argument for Melchizedek and Christ is sort of like that. It's sort of like what we can say of Melchizedek in a non-literal way is what we can say of Christ in a literal way. He has no origin. Well, Christ in a literal way, in a very nuanced way, has an or, uh, doesn't have an origin. Okay, This is great news because since Jesus Christ is a priest for all time, uh, he's our everlasting priest, one of the reasons why it's good news is because we don't have to second guess whether or not 
we need to offer anything to God in order to supplement what Christ has already done for us. See, what we have, and this is going to get into next Sunday evening and the intercession of Jesus Christ, is what we have in heaven is the pledge that our sins have been dealt with because Jesus Christ, the eternal and infinite sacrifice, is always before the Father. And not reminding the Father of what he's done for his people, but he ever lives to make intercession for the behalf of his people. We'll get into that next Sunday evening. But this is great news. That our sacrifice, that great sacrifice that happened over 2,000 years ago, does not have an expiration date. There's never going to be a time when the efficacy and the infinite value of Jesus Christ is going to be ran out. I mean, it's not like money. Jesus, we're never going to exhaust the infinite worth of the uh, bank account of the blood of Christ. Because Jesus Christ, or rather the one whom shed his blood on that altar of Calvary, is the eternal son made man for us. Great news. Great news. <clears throat> Saints, what is the great uh, application of all of this? Well, it's similar to the great application um, of, of last Sunday evening. And in light of all of the things that we are hearing, it's simply this, that Jesus Christ is better. He's better. He's better than any figure. He's better than any figure in the Old Testament, uh, any figure in the New Testament. There is, there is no competition between Paul and Christ. Christ is superior than Paul. Christ is superior than any of our favorite theologians, our favorite pastors. And this, saints, the priesthood of Christ reminds us of his superiority. Now, Christ, and what I'm going to argue, is greater than Melchizedek. And saints, if you remember um, what we, what we, what I told you to keep in your minds um, when I said when Abram met Melchizedek, what happened? Melchizedek blessed Abram. And then what? And then if you read further, what happens after that? Abraham gives tithes to Melchizedek. He gives him a tenth. Now, if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then how much greater is Jesus Christ? This was the big debate in Christ's day, is it not? John 8, verses 50, 51 to 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone follows my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you are, that, now we know that you have a demon. And it's a, just, that's kind of interesting. It's an interesting response to Christ, right? Like, okay, now we know you got a demon. This dude's crazy. Abraham died, and the prophets as well. Yet you say, if anyone follows my word, he will not taste death. You were not greater than our father Abraham who died, are you? So here they're appealing to Abraham, the father of fathers, the man. I mean, if there was, if there was, if there was a statue of anyone that would be built, it would be Abraham. One of them big, you know, you remember in Iraq, that big Saddam Hussein statue that was torn down. Um, he's the man. 
And these guys, they're saying, you're not greater than Abraham though, right? You remember when the Pharisees and Sadducees told Christ, Abraham is our father. So people were constantly referring to Abraham because Abraham is the supreme believer. He is the one, the apex of it all. But again, saints, the argument holds uh, uh, doesn't do, do justice, or rather doesn't do any violence to the argument that I'm making, that if, if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then how much greater is Jesus Christ than Abraham? Again, Genesis 14, and Melchizedek said of Sa- king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was, uh, he was a priest of God the Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Hebrews 7, verse 6 through 7, comments on this verse. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. The lesser person, Abraham, Abram, is blessed by the greater, Melchizedek. Again, saints, if Jesus Christ is greater than Melchizedek, then how much greater is he than Abraham? He's greater than all. He is greater than all. And just as Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Jesus Christ, the greater Melchizedek, blesses us. Remember the great words of the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1? Blessed Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You see, what Christ gives to us is what Melchizedek couldn't give to to Abraham. And that is every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. What are those spiritual blessings? Read Ephesians. Read Romans. Adoption. Sanctification. All of these great things that uh, we love to hear about union with God. Melchizedek gives to us. And just as Melchizedek brought out bread and wine before he blessed Abraham, uh, what we have before us also, before Christ blesses us, or rather, the way in which Christ blesses us is through the bread and the cup. Through the bread and the cup, we receive all of the benefits, those blessings that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1 is what Christ gives to us at the supper. So saints, let's be blessed this evening. Let's open our hearts. Let's allow God to open our souls. And let's allow the Holy Spirit to bless us with all the merits and benefits of Jesus Christ and apply it to us once again that eternal redemption.